0: Today we're coming to you live from Inkwell on the Monroe County Courthouse Square to address questions Bloomington area residents have submitted to our city limits series asking about how to combat climate change. We've received a lot of questions about how to be more environmentally friendly since the September 20th climate strike, ranging from the impact of parking garages and housing density to eating habits. Today we're working to address some of these questions with climate experts and city officials. We'll be joined by a live audience. Today we're talking about climate change, right after this hour's news. the Inkwell on the Monroe County Courthouse Square. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU-WTIU News along with co-host WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Today we're tackling some of the City Limits questions people have sent in on climate change. City Limits is where Bloomington area residents can send us questions and we work to answer them. People have sent in a lot of questions about climate change lately which we'll talk about today with our guests. Plus, if you have questions, those of you who are here in the live studio or the live audience, we're not in the studio, uh, you can fill out your cards and then give them to one of the people who's raising their hands around the room, I think Becky's back there, and a couple of other people, and they'll bring them to the front so we can uh, try to get your questions answered too. So we have four guests here that are joining us to help answer these questions. Uh, Alex Crowley is director the City of Bloomington Economic and Sustainable Development Department. Janet McCabe is on the other end. She's the Director of the Environmental Resilience Institute. Andrew Predmore is right here. He's the Director of Sustainability at Indiana University. And Matt Flaherty is Bloomington City Council at Large. Starting in 2020, he ran on a platform that was uh, very very much based on uh, climate change. If you do want to give us a call, or you can't give us a call today, but if you want to send us a question on Twitter, it's at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions for the show at news at org. So thanks. I thought we would start just by having you explain a little bit more about your role in this issue. So Alex Crowley, I want to start with you as Director of Bloomington Economic and Sustainable Development. Uh, what, you know, what's your, what are your goals for climate change and for addressing this issue?
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Bob. Uh, so, Alex Crowley, I'm with the city of Bloomington, um, and uh, the Department of Economic and Sustainable Development has really uh, uh, three major areas of focus, one of which is sustainability. We also look at economic vitality, and we look at arts and culture, all of which is sort of the quality of life that we look at, that we all enjoy at Bloomington. Um, our uh, department and uh, the city as a whole is coordinating on issues of, of climate, climate change, mitigation and adaptation. Um, and we uh, developed a sustainability action plan in 2018, which is a five-year plan that lays out um, what kinds of actions we felt at the time with a lot of community input we would want to pursue. It'd be An evolving document as time goes on, obviously we have new information coming in all the time. And so our plan really is to, is to focus in on actions, look at, at uh, short-term actions that we can take, longer-term planning, and, um, and, then, and then also look at the vulnerabilities that we have. Uh, so we're about to undertake uh, a climate vulnerability assessment, um, which, will, which will help us to understand you know, structural changes that we need to make over the long-term in the city.
0: Okay, I want to move down to uh, Andrew Predmore, Director of Sustainability for IU. So what's your office do?
2: Sure. Um, so, again, yeah, I'm Andrew Predmore. I'm the University Director of Sustainability at IU. Um, our work is, is sort of split in, in between two main categories. So, uh, on the one hand, we do a lot of um, co-curricular training for students in sustainability. So, we're really trying to um, help develop uh, leaders in sustainability. So, we give them hands-on learning experiences. So, we do some undergraduate research with them. Um, we have an internship program, so we're really plugging our students into the operational work that we're doing. And then we have a program where we send students across the state to work in business, nonprofit, and municipalities and sustainability. So that's kind of a bit, you know, that's probably about twenty-five, thirty percent of the work of Sustain IU, the Office of Sustainability at IU, is that co-curricular kind of leadership development among our students. And then the other part is is the stuff that I gather a lot of these folks are, are really. Uh, interested in, which is um, sustainable operations of the university. Um, so when it comes to that, we ha- we're active when it comes to energy in the built environment, environmental quality and land use, uh, waste issues are something that we're very focused on right now, um, sustainable foods as well as transportation. So we work across all those areas, and we're really trying to infuse sustainability or sustainability thinking into decision-making across all those areas. So those... In a nutshell, that's, that's what we do. All right.
0: Matt, I'm going to skip you for just a second. I want to go to, uh, to Janet McCabe, director of Environmental Resilience Institute. Uh, so, the, the Institute's part of one of the Grand Challenges.
3: Right. It's exactly right. It's called the Prepared for Environmental Change Grand Challenge. And it was uh, um, announced by President McRobbie as part of the lead up to the bicentennial, recognizing that environmental changes and climate change is having an effect on Indiana. Um, affecting our communities and, and people who live here. And that the university, with its wealth of expertise and resources, kind of had an obligation to give back to the state and help Indiana become more resilient in the face of environmental change. So, so that included the, the establishment of the Re- Environmental Resilience Institute, which is a place that brings together people from across the university, as well as people on the outside to partner on research and implementation and projects that relate to making Indiana more resilient. So that's not just Bloomington, it's the entire state. And because it's IU, we actually have the ability to influence national, regional and national policy as well.
0: Okay, so Matt Flaherty, I I wanted the other three to speak first because they've been involved in roles uh, with the university, with the city. You were elected to the city council on a platform that uh, so Really, climate change is, is urgent and we need to be moving faster. And I want you
4: to talk a little bit about you know, what, where you think the city needs to go, where you think we all need to go. Sure. Uh, just briefly by way of background, uh, I'm a recovering attorney uh, who decided to go back to school at our O'Neill School to work on energy and climate policy issues uh, because I really wanted to have uh, an impact in the, in the public sphere in that way. Um, and I decided to run for council about a year ago and was uh, lucky enough to get elected. I threw a lot of hard work and a lot of talks with uh, folks all over the community. And yeah, climate action and resilience was uh, one of the pillars of my campaign. Uh, I think people don't often think of it as a local issue, but our transportation systems, the built environment, our buildings, our energy use, those are all local uh, things that we can impact locally. So we actually have a huge role to play, and that's the nature of collective action on climate globally, is everybody has to play their part, and that includes Bloomington. I I do think we can do better. Uh, I'll say three things briefly. Um, One is that when I talk about climate action and resilience, centrally, I think this is a people issue, an issue of equity and justice Uh, because it's the folks that are vulnerable that are going to be most impacted by climate change. And often the solutions we need to take, like access to transit and more sustainable and affordable housing are are climate solutions that are also equity solutions and help the people who are struggling most. Uh, Second is I think we need to focus on systems level changes. Um, There's been a lot of talk about personal responsibility and behavior. And while that does matter and people should look at their personal choices and try to improve, the reality at the end of the day is we need systems level change and we need to change um, the incentives and the way we structure our transportation systems, for instance, our built environment to actually achieve those systems changes. So I want to think about that. And third, I think it's government's role uh, to affect that system's change. We have a lot of policy tools at our hand. While our emissions levels are small for government operations, we can influence a lot with our policy choices. The carrots and sticks we, we put out there for people to uh, affect behavioral change and, and what we incentivize and what we disincentivize. So I'll leave it at that for now,
3: okay. thanks.
0: Thank you very much. I want to get to some of the questions that have been sent into the station in the last few weeks. And one of them is is a basic question about carbon fee and dividend. Can somebody explain that? Just how does it work?
3: I, I can take a shot at it. Um, so there's a lot of discussion at the national level about what's going to happen with, with carbon. And, of course, people have been talking about putting a price on carbon for years and years and years. Um, basically, the way these systems work is that, Um, the notion is that using coal, using fossil-based fuels, um, has uh, external impacts, um, impacts on public health, on our communities that are um, not internalized to the company that's digging the coal out of the ground or using it. Um, Those are called externalities. And so the idea is if you put a, a price on carbon that the that the originator of that fossil fuel has to pay, then th- that will internalize the cost to society um, that that is being created by the use of this fuel. Um, the notion of um, fee and dividend is that to the extent that a price on carbon raises money, what do we do with that money? And one what, one thing to do is to give it back to the public so that it's sort of a revenue neutral. It's because um, people don 't like the idea of taxes and making government bigger, Well, you take that money and then give it back to the to the um, to the public who 's affected by those externalities as well so that 's the notion of uh, fee and dividend
0: okay thank you. Sure.
3: I want to just jump into more of these questions we got, and they
5: do really run the gamut here. Um, But I think, Matt, maybe you can start off by answering this one because it sort of follows with what you were saying. But the question is, why has it been put on the individual to make responsible consumer choices rather than holding larger corporations accountable for implementing these changes? Uh,
4: I think, yeah, I spoke to that a little bit. I do think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. It's not one or the other. It's, we can do both. I I do worry when we focus too much on individual behavior uh, because no matter how individually virtuous someone is with solar panels or geothermal energy or anything else, their Prius or their (laughs) electric vehicle, that's one person we need we do need systems level changes so we need uh, to create the incentives for for those choices to be the norm uh, for everyone not just someone who wants to take personal action but it becomes the uh, the default choice for most folks so it's it's both we need those interactions and i will say also when people get when they care about their personal carbon footprint and, and try to improve on that they tend to become more politically active on those issues too and then they vote for uh, candidates who will support those things and support the systems level change so i do think it's a both and uh, take action in your own life but also really work hard to support the systems changes we need at, at local state and federal government as well
2: Okay. anybody else want to respond
3: um,
2: i mean i would just sort of um... echo and agree with matt's thoughts on this because in my job uh, on the campus, we do a fair amount of kind of uh, pushing or advocating for behavior change, like through an energy challenge or um, whether it's you know sustainable transportation or recycling. And I think those things are, are really important and collectively they can have an impact. But I do worry sometimes that when we push those individual things and we put all the responsibility on the individual behavior change that we're missing sort of you know, the big systems changes and we're all plugged into this system and so, um, yeah, there needs to be policy changes as well. So I just sort of echo that thought. I,
3: well, I think we can see, too, the huge impact that it can have when a big retailer decides to put uh, efficient light bulbs on the lower shelves and less efficient ones on the higher shelves. Um, people buy the ones that they can reach. And you. so you don't have to change people's behavior, uh, You, but think of what a difference that can make.
5: I want to ask you about IU facilities in general. I know this is something that a lot of folks have asked about. You may have answered something about this, but uh, someone in the audience asked, how is IU heating its facilities? How much coal is still being used? And are there plans to install any solar panels on campus?
2: It's a great question. Um, so we have a central heating plant. If you know where, the, where Hodge Hall is in and, and that part of 10th Street, there's a the central heating plant which is behind that. And, um, and it basically, uh, uses turbines and they're mostly natural gas that is being burned, not a lot of coal. Coal is, a little bit of coal is burned to maintain the ability to to use coal if we need to in more of emergency type of situations with with, um, heating the campus. Um, So yeah, we made that transition to primarily natural gas back in 2012. And so that that significantly reduced our our greenhouse gas footprint. What was the second part of the question? Solar panels. we're, we're actively looking at that, and looking at that in a lot of different ways. We do have some solar on the campus, but it's, um, it's more demonstration scale than it is really offsetting the, the type of greenhouse gas footprint that we have. Uh, but we are looking at doing that at a, at a much larger scale. Um, I will say that uh, we have a lot of older building stock, and so there's a lot of really quick return on investment types of things that can still be done across campus that lower our greenhouse gas footprint and save the university money. Things like LED lighting, you know, you do that and it it pays off in a couple of years often. Um, So those things have been forefronted. Working on efficiency has been um, forefronted ahead of renewables at this point, but we're looking at it carefully.
0: I'm going to go to another question. This one would go to Alex. How about planting a garden on top of the new Fourth Street garage?
1: (laughs) I would love to see that. Uh there there's going to be uh you know uh, uh solar panels up there. There's going to be parking up there. So so uh, you know but but I was just at the uh US Green Building Council uh annual meeting in Atlanta. There's some really interesting green roof activity going on. I think we've got a lot of opportunity, you know, uh you look around, you look at roofs for supermarkets, for example, you know, these huge uh surfaces. Um, so I think I think certainly you know, uh, amping up our our ability to do green roofs uh, effectively, cost-effectively, and really educating the development community on that is is um, is a is a good priority for us. Okay,
0: we had a handful of questions about transportation. I'm going to ask. Uh, there's one from here in the audience, and one that was on our list from uh, being emailed to us. That I think uh, both Alex and Matt would probably take the lead on. But anybody's free to answer any question at any time. So uh, the one that came in by email, how are you going to handle traffic issues without alienating and hurting people who live out in the county and have no choice but to drive? The one that was uh, sent up to the front from the audience is in Monroe County 2016, spending on tourism, 386 million, transportation portion was approximately 70 million. Countywide employment in 2018, 91,240 of this, 24,000 were non-residents. How do we reduce transportation emissions without killing the economy? So
1: well, I can start, um, you know, we recognize there's a tremendous uh, workforce uh, coming in from out of town um, and we really appreciate that. Our employees appreciate that. I think it's a, uh, some people make a choice to do that. Uh, some people are, are priced out because of our, um, you know, our housing and, and the cost of housing in Bloomington. So there are a variety of reasons f- uh, f- why people are commuting in and out. So we, we certainly count on that workforce and don't want to in any way um, overburden their ability to earn a you know, uh, wage here in Bloomington and contribute to the economy. Having said that, there are definitely ways that we can try to uh, facilitate that behavior um, in either more sustainable ways. So for example, uh, Bloomington Transit is looking at uh, possibly micro mobility ways to to uh, you know get people in using kind of smaller versions of public transportation um, but also we we're, we're looking at um, you know are there are there park and rides are there are there ways to lessen the burden on and and the congestion in the city um, and the requirement for parking and all of that that um, that uh, enhances Bloomington's experience while also uh, allowing these people to to continue to earn a livelihood in Bloomington.
4: Okay, Matt. Uh, yeah, this certainly goes to the systems change theme, huh? Uh, I'll echo some of what Alex said, and um, back to what I said too about equity. When we when we make changes like this, if we you know stop subsidizing parking so heavily, for instance, that does have equity implications. We need to be very sensitive to the folks who are struggling who are going to be impacted by that. So I think there's some big things that need to change. One is uh, our, on our housing needs, workforce housing needs. If, if you work in Bloomington and are a relatively low wage earner, you should be able to live in town. We need housing avail- supply and availability for folks, ideally in transit oriented uh, locations or walkable locations. Um, I think enhancing our transit system with either bus rapid transit um, or other tools like possibly a circulator shuttle. Uh, to connect parking downtown uh, would be helpful. There's been a little bit of discussion around that. I like the idea of pairing that with um, the hospital site garage that will become available in a few years. That will be a uh, really underutilized asset that we inherit if um, if we don't do something with it. So having that available as a park and ride. Differential pricing of parking can also help. Uh, we have a lot of underutilized parking. Uh, if you go to, you know, in front of City Hall right now, I guarantee you most of those metered spots are empty uh, or 7th Street just west of there. So doing differential pricing where those maybe are cheaper than ones on the square uh, to allow price sensitive folks uh, the ability to not be so impacted by the price of parking. Um, so definitely something I'm very um, sensitive to uh, and making sure that we aren't harming people with, with policy changes that we need to see happen.
5: You mentioned a little bit about um, the west side, I believe. So one of the questions I know we got was, wh- what are the plans to make getting from east to west side of Bloomington better?
1: Well, so as you probably know, there's a uh, you know a, a transit optimization study going on. I think there's one more public hearing for that, um, and uh, so there's a kind of macro look at how the transit system's working. There's a there's a, a, a pretty strong vocal push to reevaluate, uh, you know, opportunities for different funding, additional funding at, uh, for public transit. So we're looking at generally the public transit system as part of that. There's also, uh, you know, a lot of investment being made by uh, the Hamilton administration, the city as a whole, into, um, you know, uh, bike paths, ped, uh, pedestrian paths. Uh, so, you know, you'll be able to really move around the city in ways that don't depend on either cars or, you um, uh, even public transportation if that if that's something you want to pursue. So, um, you know, east-west has always been a little bit of a challenge, it was particularly a challenge as I-69 was uh, was was happening. Um, but certainly it's a great opportunity to look for ways to move people more efficiently and um, uh, sustainably between the two. What's the
5: timeline on the transit study?
1: Um, I think it I think they're they're wrapping up their opposite their, their input to now, uh, at the end of the year, and I, I believe it's going to be 2020 when they kind of, you know, look at what next.
0: So one question that came in and, uh, is about what other cities are doing, what other places are doing. So what are other cities doing who are providing leadership in addressing climate change that Bloomington hasn't done, either in the U.S. or, or in Europe, which may be leading the way? Okay. Janet, you want to start?
3: I can start and I know uh, Matt will have some things to add here, so it, it's always instructive to look at what other places are doing. One of the things that we're trying to do at the institute is to bring resources to Indiana communities that are relevant to them. So. Um, the mayor of Bloomington or Kokomo or Jasper or whatever um, is not going to do the kinds of things or be worried about the same kinds of things as the city of Miami, for example. Um, So we're trying to gather information about small and medium-sized Midwestern cities in particular as as things that are relevant to them. Um, But there are lots of examples um, all over the country. Um, One of the things that... I wanted to mention, while acknowledging how far ahead Bloomington is, um, it's a really leading in the state and in the Midwest, I would say, so bravo, mm-hmm. um, keep keep at it. Um, I would love to see more en- engagement by the business community in the city. The city doesn't have to do everything, and the city can't do everything. And the, through its greenhouse gas inventory process, it's, it's learned and we have data that, that show that Most of the emissions don't come from city operations, which are the things that they can control. Um, And there, I think, are good examples of uh, cities that are engaging their business community or business communities that are self-engaging for either um, carrot stick or carrot types of programs um, to uh, be proactive in the business community.
4: Uh, sure, I'll follow up with a few things, um, and that's right that, that our emissions, you know, that the city operations generate is about ten percent of total emissions community wide. Um, so we need to look at how we how we shift things in those that other ninety percent. And I think uh, transportation's one example I could point to. So we've had a, a goal for a while now of becoming a a platinum certified bike sin, uh, friendly city, which requires twelve percent mode share for commuting. We're at about we've been stuck at about four or five percent for a while. So that's going to require infrastructure choices and and a safer and more convenient bike system for people to to buy into that. Of course, not everyone can bike, but some people can and would like to, but don't feel safe. Um, Transit is another one. If we can actually increase investment in transit and uh, shift ridership there through things like bus rapid transit, which Indianapolis just got, um, and we have a greater population density than them, by the way. um, Those types of things can make big changes. I ran some quick numbers earlier today to kind of see if we could actually achieve that platinum bike share, get to 12% mode share, if we could double our transit ridership, say, in the next five to ten years, uh, that's 12,000 people who are no longer driving to work alone. That's 66,000 tons of carbon per year, and that'd be a 4% reduction in emissions, not from the city operation side, but from other areas. So that's, we do need to look at the policy tools to shift away. And, and this question started about what other cities are doing. I'll point to the ones that are platinum bike cities right now, Madison, Wisconsin, Fort Collins, Colorado, Boulder, Portland, and Davis, California. Uh, we can look to up the road to in Indianapolis or other Midwest communities for, for folks that are enhancing the transit system. So if we can invest more in that and really start to shift that mode share in the transportation side, uh, that's one, one thing we can do.
0: Um, Andrew, can you expand that to think about universities, too? Are there leading universities that are, are really on the cutting edge of it?
2: Sure. I mean, this is something that we think about all the time is, you know, how do we stack up in the Big Ten? How do we stack up with our peers? And, um We are rated as a gold university in the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability and Higher Education, the sustainability metrics. So we're doing well in a lot of places, but particularly it helps to benchmark in areas where there's work to be done. And so uh, when it comes to renewable energy, one of the things that I've been working on is looking at our Big Ten peers and seeing, you know, what are they doing on renewable energy and what – and more – and as important to that is – you know, what is the context in that state in terms of the regulatory environment, what allows them to to make some of the choices that they are that maybe we haven't been able to. So that is something that we do all the time. Um, But Indiana University in the Big Ten is doing quite well, Um, but there there are other universities that, it's it's either Colorado State or UC Boulder that is Stars Platinum, and the interesting thing about that is they don't even have an Office of Sustainability. So as I mentioned earlier, Sustainability is just infused throughout the university and throughout all of their decision making, and that's how they get there. So it's an interesting model. Um, So, okay. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, I think I'd like to echo what other people have said. I think Bloomington very much fights above its weight class when it comes to um, sustainability. Um, But, you know, Bloomington also has a lot of peer cities that we constantly are looking at that we're trying to learn from. You know, some examples are. Ann Arbor does a really interesting job with uh, the local food economy. They have you know, kind of incubator farm land that has been purchased. Uh, so there are these great ideas out there. We just, um, you know, we, we are, are part of a variety of different groups that interconnect us with other cities in Indiana, with other cities uh, across the country, and we're constantly learning from them, uh, stealing ideas from them wherever possible. People are stealing ideas from us um and so that that constant interchange i think helps us to 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 really improve ourselves mm-hmm.
5: quick follow-up that's sort of a question slash comment but what about making sure that bloomington is a leader and is the one doing experimental things it was a question we just got
1: well so you know mayor hamilton's um uh very much created a culture at city hall of try things don't be afraid to fail try them out if they work expand them so we have a ton of uh, small-scale beta trials going on right now. I'll give you an example: we've, you know, taken a uh, Zipcar from um, from the network and put it in Bryant Park, kind of a quiet little thing. Because what we're trying to do is dip our toe into a much more significant system-wide uh, car share, um, you know, push. And um, we, you know, uh, put out bike share, and and frankly, bike share, you know, uh, came out. Scooters arrived, bike share wasn't able, that particular model was not able to survive, and so uh, that, ha- that went away. So there are things that work and there are things that don't. But if you don't try stuff um, and you don't try it in a very measurable way to understand what the real dynamics of what you're, what you're trying to test and, and how is it measuring up to that, um, if you don't have those trials constantly going on, then I think you don't, you're not rolling out on the cutting edge uh, and Bloomington has been at the cutting edge for a long time, and we and, and, you will know, we'll continue to be so.
3: I think this is a really important point, and and, and doing these sorts of things is not always compatible with election cycles. Um, uh, but I think that for the most part, mayors care about their communities and they want to leave them better off than when they found them and um, doing things that get embedded just into the way the city does business is the the best way to have things be lasting. And if I could just add one little commercial, um, one of the things we do at the institute is collect case studies of these either either innovative or not so innovative, but just things that other Indiana communities or Midwestern communities have done. It's, on the, it's called the Environmental Resilience Institute Toolkit, and you can find it on our website. And I'd encourage any listeners who have examples of city and town programs that they think ought to be showcased on, as a case study to please let us know.
0: You're listening to Noon Edition. We're coming to you live from the Inkwell today in downtown Bloomington. We're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in about 60 seconds.
6: From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org.
4: Welcome back
0: to a new edition. We're coming to you live from the Inkwell in downtown Bloomington. We're talking about climate change. We've had lots of questions to our City Limits project about climate change. We're answering a lot of those today, but I want to tell you that the ones we don't get to today and the ones you send in to us from the audience here at the Inkwell that we don't get to today. We'll continue to pursue these. Uh, we're not – we're going to stop this project. We'll continue to pursue these through uh, twenty, the rest of 2019 and through 2020. So thank you all for being here. Our guests today are Alex Crowley, the Director of the City of Bloomington Economic and Sustainable Development Department, Janet McCabe, Director of the Environmental Resilience Institute, Andrew Predmore, Director of Sustainability for Indiana University, and Matt Flaherty, who will be a city council member starting January 1st, representing uh, in the city of Bloomington, an at-large city council member. So if you have questions that you want to send to us, you can still send them by Twitter, at Noon Edition, and uh, you can also send them by email to uh, noon at indiana.edu. So thanks very much for being here again. As I said, I want to ask a couple of a couple of questions that came in to us, and these are kind of big picture questions. One of them is, how do we spread the understanding that we are on the verge of collapse and that measures discussed so far don't align with the crisis? Of course, first of all, I would say, are we on the verge of collapse? I think we have to address the science there. But you know, are the de- decisions we're making now enough on climate change? So, Janet.
3: Well, I, I can start, um, things are very serious. I, I think it's, um, it, it, it's challenging to think about, do we approach this as um, uh, an immediate crisis and, and nothing else matters um, and our life is over, um, which can be um, uh, a pretty challenging way to try to persuade people to, to do, invest and do things differently. Um, the other approach is to make it, not ignore the science, which says that this is a very urgent problem and we are not doing enough now, which I firmly believe, based on the science that I've seen. Um, but that all is not lost, right? And um, we know that we're going to continue to emit carbon as a globe and as a country for many years to come. And the idea that we're going to be carbon neutral in any t- time near is is not realistic. But Every ton of carbon that does not get put into the atmosphere is going to make all of this easier to deal with. So uh, an Indiana that warms by four degrees is a lot better than an Indiana that warms by six degrees. And an Indiana that warms by no more than two degrees is even better. So we, we can't give up hope. Um, we, we, we don't want to um, uh, change our entire way of life as we know it. There's, there's tons of ingenuity and innovation out there and things that we have not yet done that uh, we, we could be doing and should be doing.
1: All right. The rest of you? Well, I can, I mean, you know, one of the things about uh, being at the city is that the constituents that we have are everybody, right? Um, I, I, I agree that, uh, you know, you, you have at the one end uh, the world is. Uh, is ending, and you know, and, and that sort of creates uh, people just locking up and getting depressed. The other end, you have hyperoptimism and or you know, sort of ignorance of, of what's going on. The right answer, I think, is somewhere in between. But I think one of the things that we see at the city is the need to communicate uh, the urgency and the importance of this in language that is the most relevant to the groups that we're communicating to. So, you know, if you're talking to a corporate entity. Um, that corporate entity is going to be interested in in uh, economic, you know, returns on investment and economic uh, uh, benefits. If you're talking to uh, individuals, they might be more interested in, in the health benefits of things. So I think w- one of the things that we can do is, as an, as a communal effort in communication of the urgency of this is to uh, is to really bring people to the table that are not the, here yet uh, and listen to them, find out what's most meaningful to them and then tie that to the issues that we're, we're uh, addressing from a, from a policy perspective.
5: Mitchell asks, this maybe for Janet, what's the one positive thing everyday people can do now to combat climate change, but also to combat despair?
3: So that's interesting. And um, I often ask people that question. Uh, the, the answer that I get the most is vote, is vote for, policy makers who have this as a priority because policy change is is the most efficient and effective way to do it. Um, Other than that, I don't think that there's one thing. Um, I think you guys at FIU put out a really wonderful compendium of all the things that people can do. And I think taking some actions is an important thing for people to do to feel empowered and to give them something to talk about in a non-threatening way with their friends and neighbors and family. Find the thing that's in common. You like birds? I like birds. What's happening to the birds in your yard? And that can take you to into a more positive direction.
0: Yeah, it wasn't all the things you can do, but there were 36 different ideas that we got from this project, from
4: various <laughs> people that we've talked to, so. Yeah, the first, the ones with the biggest impact, I will say a dietary change. If you can shift to a mostly plant-based diet, also, if you have the means to put solar panels on your roof right now in Bloomington because we have a mostly coal-based uh, electric grid. So people in Bloomington, if you have, have the ability to make those choices, that's a pretty big change to your personal carbon footprint.
2: We, we, we use a, a book called Drawdown that sort of has sort of globally what are the best strategies for addressing climate change and sort of following up on your comment. One of, one of the big, I think number four on the list is, is food waste. Right, so we're focused on waste on the campus and recognize that sometimes the things that you think are most impactful are not and it really pays to look at, at some of the research on that. The one other thing I'd add about sort of communication, I think your your bird example is like this is you know, we, we need to talk about what climate change is gonna do right here in Monroe County. What's it how's it gonna impact the, the IU campus and that's what gets attention around well how do we need to respond to that Mm -hmm. you know so if you if you just talk about climate change as a global issue it can be hard to get traction on the sorts of changes that we need and there's a great um, there's great work called the Indiana climate change impact assessment which anybody can look at which really tells you what's going to go on in your county um, by 2050 so I encourage you to look at that let's go back
0: to solar for just a minute we had a couple more questions about that one of them is what would be the impact of requiring that each new roof in the community had to have solar wind energy gathering capacity. And I guess that again, that would be a maybe for Alex, and also, what about what if the university decided to take on this kind of a this kind of a role or this kind of a project? You see, requiring you said requiring uh, each new roof in the community to have solar wind energy gathering
1: capacity. So each new roof. So each new roof. Anytime something is built, that. Well, so um, you know certainly that would help accelerate an already strong solar deployment. Um, you may know this uh, that we have i think Menorah County is like three percent of the population of Indiana, and we 've got uh, about ten percent of the solar deployment uh, in terms of interconnections um, so so we 're pretty strong on that but but certainly we want to see that uh, go even further um, and um, you know it will add uh, Uh, Cost right so so that that's something that we have to pay attention to so if 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 housing is being built, let's say it's a housing uh, project and uh, then that cost will likely be passed along to uh, To either tenants or purchasers of the housing Um, So there's a little tension there with uh, um, You know two goals that we have in the city, which is one increasing the renewable energy um, uh, footprint while on the other hand Trying to manage the uh, affordable housing uh, challenge that we have here. Um, so, anyway, those those are the kinds of balancing acts that we're constantly looking at to to um, to create policy. Any discussion about that
0: at the university of university built?
2: So, sort of the question is sort of about new construction. Yeah. Um, all of our new bu- new buildings have to be LEED Gold certified, so that's a pretty high standard for um, a green building and construction. So that doesn't necessarily require solar on that rooftop, but it requires that that's a really efficient building. And so that's something that IU has been um, really a leader on. You know, we, ha- we have the second most lead buildings in the Big Ten, so we've done very well with that. Um, but back to the, the solar question, I, this is my opinion. I think the numbers bear this out, that um, I think our best opportunity for renewable energy on campus will be through, through offsite large-scale solar. And not necessarily on our rooftops on the Bloomington campus. Another quick
0: quick follow up on on solar. How do we incentivize solar for rental properties?
4: Look, Matt. I'll follow up briefly from the previous question, speak to this one as well. um, Which is that from a regulatory perspective, we're often limited here in Indiana. And I sort of doubt that we could actually require solar energy on new roofs uh, as part of our zoning code. We could do an incentives program maybe, but probably not a requirement. Um, What I'd like to see instead is is a shift towards uh, financial products that will that open access to solar for, for more folks um, in a more equitable way. So 0% are very low interest loans and a program to help guide people through that, either through our new CDFI, um, CDFI Friendly Bloomington Organization, or a or credit union or somebody else to, to work on a green loan. Uh, as far as how to incentivize that for rental properties, that'll be difficult too. But it's something we should look at what other communities are doing um, and work with. Local rental companies to see if we can do that and have them. Of course, with a with rental property, the thing you're addressing is the split incentive problem. Uh, landlords don't have, have an incentive to put solar on the roof if um, the tenants are the ones who are going to benefit from it. So, figuring out how to address that and, and how other communities are addressing that is a good step forward.
0: Define CDFI for our. Oh
4: issues. yeah, um, community development financial institution. Um, it's it's uh, we're the first CDFI friendly place. Uh, in, in the country is that right Alex <laughs> yeah it was actually we we invented the model so
1: Bloomington is you know is the first city and it's really a uh, a credit to Mayor Hamilton who who has a lot of CDFI experience basically these are institutions that that are mission driven that are making financial investments communities and uh, the mayor uh, really pushed us everybody to figure out uh, how do we get more CDFI um, activity in Bloomington and we looked at standing up our own, which is what a lot of cities do. But CDFI-friendly Bloomington is basically, think of it as a harbor master role between what the community needs in terms of either small business investments, uh, community facilities, or housing, and connecting those opportunities with uh, uh, CDFIs that are out in the country uh, that are looking for investments beyond their own footprints. And so it's a really efficient way and, and and we are literally on the cutting edge. We invented this. And then it was picked up by Mayor Pete in South Bend, by the way. Um, but, but this is something that, that was originated in Bloomington that is, in fact, now starting to take off uh, nationwide. So it's a good example you were talking about innovating earlier on. Uh, this is a classic example of, of um, Mayor Hamilton really basically saying we've got to try it out and see if it works.
5: We've gotten a number of questions uh, for Andrew questions dealing with the university. So I'll just go through a couple of them here quickly. Um, a question we got from at least two people, is Indiana University or the city of Bloomington fossil free in its investments and within that endowments, retirement funds?
2: The answer is no at IU. Um, I mean, that's certainly been a, a s- something that students have taken up and there's a lot of active, active student groups in that area, but it's, it's not really at this point a, a part of my job to work on that particular issue.
5: Um, another one. When will IU convert from natural gas to renewables?
2: Well, you, you have the um, good-sized capital asset in the central heating plant that is sitting there on campus that is currently heating the campus or is responsible for heating the campus. So I wouldn't expect complete move towards renewables to happen particularly quickly, but we do have greenhouse gas reduction goals um, that we're striving for, and one of those is 80% reduction by 2050. And we have an integrated energy master plan that's going to help us achieve those goals.
0: Does the university have an inventory like the
2: city just released, the
0: greenhouse gas inventory? Yeah,
2: we do that every year. You can see um, anybody can look at our STARS report. Again, that's the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education. You can see how Indiana University is performing across a whole suite of um, pieces of sustainability, right, how we're doing with food, how we're doing on energy, and part of that is a greenhouse gas inventory
5: jana i want to follow up with you about this idea of um, investments and fossil fuel companies is that something that folks should be is is that i guess how important of an issue is that when you're looking at the bigger picture in climate change
3: well i think to the extent that people are trying to get the intent the attention of big corporations and and fossil companies and sort of voting with their money you know we 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 express our values in a bunch of different ways. And um, there's a, a growing movement of green investing, um, um, so you can invest proactively in companies that are, that are doing things and you can choose not to invest in companies that are doing things that you don't approve of, whether it's fossil fuels or tobacco or, um, or, or those sorts of things. So um, I think that's a, a, a very important lever that people have to help move policy, maybe not governmental policy, but to affect the choices that corporations make. And, you know, we are seeing the, the, the um, electricity industry moving away from coal. Uh, we haven't talked about that yet today, but, but um, th- they are moving – to, to natural gas in, in, in some instances, but renewables are getting invested in way, way more. Um, the power company in northern Indiana, uh, Nysource, just announced that they're going to close their coal plants, and um, that's because wind energy and solar is ch- is cheaper now. Um, so so we're seeing the that, 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 that even the power companies are moving in this direction.
0: You know, we've talked about a lot of... Sp- things that people can do too and one of our questioners just said what's the impact of just planting more trees somebody talk about you know tree cover and what's what's happening with tree cover on campus in Bloomington in the state
3: tree cover, planting trees is really great (laughs) can I just weigh (laughs) in in favor of planting trees and these guys can talk about the specifics but not just because it's a it's a carbon sink um, they breathe the co2 um, trees are so great in so many other ways they keep us cool um, they um, improve air quality they they just make us all happier so go yeah. go tree planting yeah, on,
2: on campus we we have a gis tree inventory um, so every single street tree on campus has been inventory by our interns in 2016 and then again in 2019 and so one of the things we're doing is is looking at how the the health of the trees has changed as we feel the impacts of climate change and starting to think about you know which species need to be planted going forward like which species are really doing well and some of the species that are native to here are actually not doing that well on campus if you walk around and so how do we need to adjust our planting list so that Indiana University is beautiful and also functional in terms of carbon sequestration and reducing stormwater management in the future so we're, we're really working hard on that and I think it you need data, though. You can't just it's it's right now because climate change is happening and and we need to adapt. It's not good enough just to plant any tree. You need to be care- You need to think about which trees you're planting, which, um, and and plant for the future, really. So we're we're working on that hard. Yeah,
1: and the city just uh, you know finished up a, a study of so in the in the case of the city, you've got public trees and then you have private trees and and together that's the entirety of the of the canopy. So speaking of data, you know, looking at what where how both of those have been advanced or not over the past period. So for example, I'm gonna get this hopefully right. Uh, uh, in the last 12 years, the number of public trees, which are the ones that are, you know, public property that the city manages has increased, I think 56%. So we've sort of uh, significantly increased though that uh, count. Um, but there's plenty of opportunity for additional uh, planting, you know, both in public spaces and private. So in Switchyard Park, literally just, just opened the other day. Uh, A lot of tree planting going on um, and so those are great opportunities for the city to make investments and direct investments in in increasing the canopy. But there are also a lot of private uh, ways to do it. And so education and incentivizing, incentivizing that kind of activity. Um, with uh, um, you know different programs that we could do is going to be helpful for us to to really increase the canopy as much as we can.
3: If I could just add there researchers as part of the Grand Challenge um, helping to develop inventories of of tree cover especially in Bloomington and Indianapolis the report that Andrew mentioned the Indiana climate change impacts assessment has a whole chapter on forestry resources and it and it says which are the species of trees Mm -hmm. that are going to do better and worse in a in, in a future climate. There are also organizations like, I live in Indianapolis, Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, that does community tree planting um, activities, which have the, the other positive benefit of getting kids out, um, working in teams, planting trees in people's neighborhoods, in their own neighborhoods, so um, many good aspects of this.
0: Good. So we have about five minutes to go, and I want, this is kind—this of, is another one of those kind of big questions. So I want all four of you to have the opportunity to answer it as completely as you can. But how can we build the political will to build a zero carbon city or something, or get to that at some point, knowing that this is a very serious problem and really no such zero carbon city exists right now? How how do we build that political will? Mm-hmm. Matt, you want
4: to start? Sure. Uh, so I think you know Catherine Hayhoe came and spoke here, a sort of famous climate change communicator and and uh, uh, atmospheric scientist. Um, and and her her main point in her TED talks is that we all need to be talking about this. Uh, don't don't assume your neighbor thinks differently than you or or is a climate change denier or anything like that. At this point, even in, in Indiana, uh, most Hoosiers are aware that climate change is happening and would like to see us do something about it. Uh, so talking to your neighbors is a good start to. Um, socially getting the awareness that we need to uh, vote for um, legislators at all levels of government, municipal, state, federal, that are going to really take action on this. And I'll, I'll use this to transition to another point, which is that the big thing that we really need to change here in Indiana and here in Bloomington is the, the energy mix we're getting from Duke Energy. We cannot possibly get anywhere close to net zero without Duke Energy committing to get there as well. They recently have committed to a 2050 net zero goal but they say whether that's you know whether you want to believe them or not that's one thing but uh, they have on their, their, you know, their, they have on their website that um, and their announcement around this that uh, they're going to get there in different ways in different states and their pathway to get there is going to depend on stakeholder engagement customers so we need to really we need to have strong goals and commitments ourselves. We need to be working regionally with our peers that are in Duke Energy's footprint and with institutions like IU to really put the pressure on them to help us meet our goals. Because we cannot get there without without pressure on them to, to much more rapidly transition to renewable energy.
1: Alex. Look, uh, you know, government is us, right? It's not like some other thing. We are government uh, and each of us is a citizen in, that works at City Hall, and everybody who, um, you know, is, is, is in the community is, is part of our, the, the communal government effort. So, you know, I, I, think, I think I would say the answer is that, um, you know, in terms of policy decisions, um, certainly uh, upward pressure from the community uh, and, and guidance and voting, uh, that, that is critical in a democracy. Uh, downward pressure by policymakers from the top down into the systems that uh, Matt was talking about, and, and really accelerating that. Uh, but again, you know, um, we cannot um, we cannot assume that um, someone else is going to take care of it. We all have to be involved in it, and we have to bring people in who can um, who can really help to advance us, whether it's corporations or individuals. So it's really a you know I hate to say this, but everybody has to be involved in it. Um, And that's how we get the the kind of outcomes that we're gonna wanna see.
3: Okay,
2: Andrew. I mean, I I think these folks have have answered the question. I mean, talking about it, I think innovation and demonstrating things that work, being willing to try things, um, you know, getting sustainability or thinking about climate in um, sectors maybe that you you wouldn't otherwise. So when I think about the university, like procurement is a huge thing that sustainability needs to be a part of decision making and procurement um but but the last thing i would add is and this is just my personal thought is that um, we need to start talking about how it it will also take some sacrifice to get there to achieve some of these goals and and everybody needs to i think start acknowledging that um but yeah about 45 seconds jan
3: well the only thing i would add that hasn't been said already i think it is is technological innovation not that we can um, invent our way out of this issue but things like battery storage um, uh, are are going to be really helpful people are going to feel more comfortable going to solar and wind if if battery storage is more advanced um, and and different kinds of distributed energy and um, electric vehicles electric vehicles need need to uh, get much more accessible to people and people feel more comfortable with them um, that 's just a small piece and, uh, and I would endorse all the things that my Co panelists here have
0: said. We'll be digging into some of these questions a little bit deeper for follow up stories and some of your other questions that you sent to us. I want to thank Alex Crowley, Janet McCabe, Andrew Predmore, and Matt Flaherty for being here with us today. Uh, for our co hosts, for my co host Sarah Whitmire, for producers Benta Boutier, Emma Atkinson, and Mark Chilla, for engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for coming today. You've been listening to Noon Edition.
6: is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports, In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation. Improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is WFIU Bloomington with translators W270BH 1019 Bloomfield, Bloomington, W264AL 100.7 Columbus, W269BU 1017 French Lick, W255BG 989 Greensburg, W291AM 1061 Co.